0: Uh, Welcome everybody to episode four of the Paramedic Podcast. Over the next few weeks, uh, we'll be discussing paramedic stories. As you know, last week we had Troy on the show, and have had some really good feedback about organ donation. So, thanks for everyone to reaching out to me after that uh, podcast. It was pretty emotional, but um, I think it was something that Troy and his family needed to do. So I was pretty, pretty happy to be a part of that for them. Um, I've passed all that information back on to Troy and the family as well. Um, So the last podcast as well, it's had the most listens out of them all. So it looks like you guys really enjoy listening to, to the stories of paramedics. So as paramedics, there's always a paramedic that we most look up to. And for me and many, that's Pete Davidson. A term we use in paramedicine is when someone becomes shiny, and it doesn't get shinier than Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Thirty-five years as a paramedic, uh, most of which was a mobile intensive flight paramedic, split between Victoria and Queensland. Uh, mainly known for his infamous rescue in the nineteen ninety-eight Sydney to Hobart, which then led to him on a led him on a journey around the world, giving motivational speeches based on this rescue. So, Pete. Introduce yourself to all of our listeners.
1: Hey, Riz, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. I just hope I can keep up the credibility of uh, all your work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I'm currently retired, now I'm only just retired, but I've been a paramedic uh, for the last 35 years mm-hmm. and uh, I started down in Victoria, um, my career down there. Um, I spent 28 years down there in Victoria and a lot of the uh, the last seven of my years up here in Queensland, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um for the last 22 years I was down in Victoria, I worked on the Victorian Air Ambulance Rescue Helicopter, which was known as Helimed 1. And uh, prior to that, I was a, a road paramedic down mm-hmm. there and then came up here as a critical care paramedic to uh, spend my last years. Yeah, because yeah. you
0: kind of sped through that whole process. So by the, by the time that you'd been in as long as me, you were already a flight paramedic working, weren't you?
1: Yeah, it didn't take, didn't take me long. It surprised me that uh, how quickly... I became a, an intensive care paramedic or a microparamedic. paramedic. So mm-hmm. I was employed down there for... I started in 86 and by uh, 1991 I was on the aircraft working as a microparamedic. paramedic. So,
0: that is hectic.
1: Um, yeah, that is hectic. And it was a, <laughs> a, a lot of pressure. It was yeah. very challenging, but mm. you know it was, a great, it was a great challenge and enjoyed every minute of it. So yeah. I wouldn't change a thing. But you were very young, very naive. Definitely. And, uh, so yeah, how
0: old were you at that time?
1: At that time I would have been... I started when I was 28, so I would have been 33, probably, or 32, 33, Mm. yeah, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. That's my age. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah. There
1: you go. Now you're making me feel old.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. So, um, what sort of inspired you to become a paramedic? I remember we spoke about this the other day.
1: Yeah. Well, I really had no inclination or inspiration at all to become a paramedic. I was actually I just hated the job I was in at the time, and uh, my father pushed me into doing an apprenticeship as he, as a fifteen-year-old. Of course, he wanted his son out working. So. Mm. He said, no, you're going to be a welder, you know, and I didn't even know what a welder was. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, you just do what your father tells you to do. And I took up an apprenticeship as a a boiler maker welder and I hated every second of it. Just Mm -hmm. I was never any good at it, Um, never enjoyed it, just knew I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. But finished off the apprenticeship and I did spend uh, a couple more years, probably six years doing that. Mm. and just i was i was just not good at it i just knew it wasn't me it wasn't for me and i was driving home from work one night and uh, or one afternoon and i just passed the ambulance station and saw the big ambulance emblem up on the on the pole there and i thought oh i wonder what you got to do to become a paramedic so i just pulled over i walked into the station and um, asked to speak to somebody about being a paramedic and the boss came out to me and and just by chance he said oh, look we're um he had a chat and he, he said oh, look we're doing um some, an intake in about 10 weeks' time, mm. I'll give you this application form, fill it out, and uh, bring it back to me, and we'll see if we can get you an interview. So that's what I did. I took it home, filled it out, brought it back, and within uh, six weeks, I had an interview, and within 10 weeks, I had a job. That's so crazy, it was hey? an incredible, And I'd never mm. looked back. It's just been mm. a, a rollercoaster ride. It's been a journey. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed I loved waking up every morning and knowing I was going to work. It was just amazing.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit different these days. Like it's come a long way. That's kind of what we're going to talk about next. Um, Because for me, um, as you know, like there's a three-year university degree and then the – well, it was a one-year graduate internship. Now it's I think six months um, to even just get on road as a graduate paramedic nowadays. Um, But back then it was like more – Sort of, you learn as you go, which I think has its place definitely as well.
1: Yeah, back then we had the actual ambulance school. You went to an ambulance school in Melbourne. So, mm. and you were taught by ambulance paramedics and um, yeah. uh, people with a lot more education than what I had back then. And um, so they would send you to, to school three times a year for six week blocks. Yeah. So they, you'd go down and you'd learn a package and practice the package down there. Um, and then you'd come back and you'd work with the clinical instructor. And uh, you'd actually be able to put that package that you've learned into practice out on the road uh, mm-hmm. with real people. So mm. it was a great way to learn, mm. and that's how they f- they spoon fed you these blocks right through your first three years until yep. you become a qualified paramedic. So it was yep. a great way to do it. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah. And you've so you've pretty much watched paramedicine evolve from that
1: mm. to
0: now university degrees, master's degrees, registration. Yeah. Um, all of the drugs that we have now. So mm. when you first started, what what could we do, like, or what couldn't we? No, we'll yeah. start with what we we could do because yeah. it's probably easier to list that.
1: Well, we couldn't do a lot. You know, yeah, we'd come from the. The early days of just load and go, you know, mm. um, that was prior to me joining the ambulance service. So it was pretty much just patch them up, chuck them in the truck and get them to hospital. But when I first started, I think we had about four drugs you could use. And uh,
0: What were they? Um, oxygen. We learned yeah, oxygen, oxygen back then. <laughs> yeah,
1: everyone, We all had oxygen. We had an inhalation anesthetic, um, uh, which we was fed through a, what they call a commissar, which was a... It was pentraine, basically methoxyfluorine. Mm. Uh, we had we had that.
0: So that's the green whistle.
1: That's the green whistle, yes. yeah. But it was fed for all through all of a, our other uh, non-paramedics. Yeah, businesses. mixed with some oxygen through this big clunky machine that you to you carry around with you. <laughs> um, and we had uh, we took a then we got some GTN in, which was a huge thing mm. um, for chest pains. Did uh, that
0: have a lot of adverse outcomes initially when you first got it? Like did par- paramedics get a bit trigger happy?
1: Oh not really. No not not oh well, well not really but it was frightening you did learn as you went um, with your gtn not to give too much <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and to Don't make follow the, the guidelines like yeah, follow yeah. the go- guidelines strictly you know uh, yeah. how it's used because once your first patient collapses with it you learn to be very very careful yeah. with it so it's
0: a quick learning curve yeah yeah, yeah. very
1: careful yeah
0: <laughs> and adrenaline
1: yeah adrenaline we certainly had adrenaline yeah, yeah that, that, and that was the extent of the drugs when we first started mm. adrenaline for your cardiac arrest so yeah, and
0: yeah. We we're talking about evidence-based medicines, really directing uh, paramedicine these days. You know, like we've come a long way from from that now, where we we can, you know, you guys can intubate and yeah. we can give uh, a massive array of drugs.
1: Yes, yeah, now. that's right. Mm. Yeah, we had um, in the early days. Uh, I suppose the best examples are when I started on the aircraft. The aircraft is sort of working on the helicopters. Yeah pinnacle of clinical experience. Um, Still is, yep. Yeah, and uh, in the early days with limited uh, protocols and and access to drugs, um, we would be transferring uh, ventilated patients from the major rural hospitals down to the metropolitan hospitals in Melbourne and because we didn't have, and these patients would be ventilated and have to be paralysed, sedated and paralysed of course, and uh, so we had ex- we had sedation drugs back then. Uh, we'd progressed to having uh, morphine medalam to sedate your patients, but they'd never give us any uh, muscle or in a paralyzing agent to paralyze the patient who was ventilated. What they would or well, what we were asked to do or forced to do <laughs> was uh, they administer the patient, the paralyze, paralyzing agent at the hospital, so it might be pancuronium. you might get eight milligrams of that. They'd administer that to the patient prior to leaving, you have a 45 minute flight from there down to Melbourne, plus your transfer times from the hospital to the airport, mm-hmm. in and out. So by the time we got to anywhere near the hospital, you know, you could be 15 minutes out from the hospital with a paralyzing agent wearing <laughs> off and that can be a disaster at 4,000 mm. feet with a, yeah, not a patient ideal. <laughs> waking up with a tube down their throat. And it wasn't unusual to be uh, sitting on patients when you're landing and holding the, holding your arms down so they don't pull the tube yeah, out, you wow, know, while yeah. they open the door and you got them inside to, <laughs> to paralyze them. So you talk about evidence-based medicine. Once yeah. that happened a number of times and it was being reported on the
0: there was uh, enough evidence on to go, clinical worksheet. There's enough
1: evidence there. Yeah, after about twelve months of that or, or multiple instances of that, mm. they they actually gave us the the paralyzing agents, which was a great relief. Oh, great! Uh, yeah, 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 definitely yeah. for the patients yeah. as well. I imagine. Yeah.
0: So, um, Pete, I just want to touch on this because I think it's a bit of a funny story. Do you remember our first job? I think you remember it now (laughs) because I brought it up the other day. Yeah. But the first time I ever saw Pete, I knew who he was um, through all of the paramedic talk about this this man who was involved in this incredible rescue. And I had a patient um, who had presented with just shoulder tip pain and we popped the ECG on and they were having an anterior septal uh, STEMI. And at this time, we had um, pre-hospital PCI, which is basically where we, we, I guess, bust up clots before we get to hospital, yeah, essentially, that's right, yeah. um, through medication um, to restore blood flow to the heart. And Pete, Pete rocked up, uh, and I was the treating paramedic. And uh, I turned around, I saw it was Pete, and I couldn't talk. And Pete <laughs> was like, well, so what do we have, guys? And I was like, oh, STEMI. Oh, and I'm like, oh, this man probably thinks I'm having a stroke. I couldn't talk. <laughs> And then he just swans in, and you know, patient's done, and does all the drugs, and the patient, you know, returned to almost returned to baseline. I think that ECG yeah, from memory. I remember
1: now, yeah, he re- responded very well. <laughs> well
0: yeah. yeah, once I got over the initial starstruck <laughs> um, incident. So, how did you uh, stay? You were in the ambulance for quite some time, like yeah. thirty-five years. That's a long. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly. In the state that the ambulance is in now, with how busy it is, but mm. what? How did you manage to stay in that long? And did you enjoy it the whole way through?
1: Yeah, and I think that's what um, creates the longevity of the whole thing. Um, I I just found it reward. Well, you know what it's like yourself. It's so rewarding to help somebody. The feeling you get from that just makes you want to go out and do it all again. Um, mm. And being on the aircraft, I was very fortunate to to get a position on the aircraft very early, mm. and you're only sent to the most critical of cases. So, That's
0: right. So you're making that impact on the most. Yeah, every and job. you can
1: see the impact, and yeah. to have and to see what happens to your patients, the outcome of the patients, mm. and of the majority of them is a great outcome. Mm. Um, it makes it inspires you to want to go out and do it all again, and I think that creates the longevity, just wanting to go, you know, to help people and and do it all again. And, and, and honestly, I. I just woke up every morning and I thought, it wasn't one of those jobs where you said, oh, no, I've got to go to work, you know. Yeah. It was just a jump out of bed, you know, what it, what's going to happen today. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just that challenge. It was that unknown thing that, that really um, piqued my interest every day. Never knew what was going to happen. And... Um, yeah, it was just the variety of jobs too. You got on the helicopter from yeah, totally. from your trauma and your inter hospital transfers to your rescue, whether it be ocean or up in the mountains in the snowfields. It just mm. kept you interested the whole time. Yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah. it's
0: definitely got an appealing factor because I know. On road, as, as you know, an ACP2, as we call them, like little plebs running around, <laughs> um, we go to a lot of stuff that's not necessarily critical, but then we do get that critical patient and you do get that level of exhilaration
1: where it's like, oh, wow,
0: we've made a difference. It doesn't
1: and, have to be a big job, mm. you know, this is, and, and this is where you learn your craft, you know, and it's mm. all very rewarding. Even I, when I came back on the road when I moved up here, mm. I found that just as rewarding you know mm. that to see the impact on your patients, yeah. but um, yeah, no, you don't have to do all the high profile stuff to get the the buzz and the the good feel out of it. Mm. Yeah,
0: I like that though. It's mm. cool when you oh, do a big is. job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess now what I really want to get into and um, what you sort of travelled the world talking about, which is pretty amazing in itself, and um, you wrote a book on it as well. Um, yeah. on the end of a wire. Yeah. And um, so the Sydney to Hobart, what what happened? So you were tasked as the mobile intensive flight paramedic at that time, and you were on the, what was it called? The helicopter. The
1: helicopter, HeliMed One, or Hem. Helimed. It's actually known as Hem's Two now, down in, uh, mm. located down in Latrobe Valley. Sounds yeah. Helimed One yeah, we'll cool. Heli One was yeah, we'll roll with
0: that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. let's let's kind of get in into that because sure. that that was an epic story.
1: Yeah. Well, for those listeners who don't know, the Sydney to Hobart is an international race. It um, brings competitors from all over the world and it's a a yachting race which starts on Boxing Day. It leaves uh, Sydney Harbour on on Boxing Day and they sail down the east coast of Australia to Tasmania and it ends in Hobart at Constitution Dock. And on the way down the east coast they have to pass through one of the most notorious stretches of ocean known in the world and it's uh, Bass Strait and it's known for its treachery and it's uh, it's claimed many boats and many lives throughout its history. Mm -hmm. And um, on this day, back in uh, 98, I was—I just happened to be the paramedic rostered on, and uh, I was actually at work. I was sitting at work, and I literally had my feet up on the desk. I had two hours of my shift to go. Due for leave, weren't you? I was due for leave, mm-hmm. yeah. The very next day, I was starting uh, five weeks annual leave, and also that very next day, I was flying out to Western Australia to enjoy my holidays. So I was pretty much in wind-down <laughs> mode, as you could well imagine. The, the last thing I wanted right write there and then was another job that would take me into overtime, but...
0: and overtime, indeed. Yeah,
1: as luck yeah. would happen, the telephone rang and it was Search and Rescue Headquarters, which is based up in Canberra. And they said, look, we're sorry to bother you guys down there, but we've got an emergency beacon going off out in Bass Strait. We need you guys to go out, locate it and provide whatever assistance is required. Well, you know, being in emergency service, you're not really allowed to say no. So within Mm. about, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, we're up in the air and we're flying north up towards Malacuta. It was reported to have been off the coast of Malacuta somewhere and Malacuta from our base is about 75 minutes flying time north. And I was in the back of the helicopter putting on my wetsuit and making sure I had everything secure and the other guys were flying and trying to pick up the frequency of... And so
0: how many people were on the co- aircraft with you?
1: On this particular day, there was a pilot. Yep. Uh, we had a, a crewman who yep. op- actually operates the winch and assists the pilot. Yep. And we had an observer on there just as a set of eyes. Yep. And I was the rescue paramedic. So there mm-hmm. are four people in there. We normally only fly with three people, but we took an observer just to help us try and search. Mm-hmm. Um And on that, like, when we're flying up towards Mallacoota, the weather at that stage wasn't too bad. There was a bit of rain about and a bit of wind, um, and we'd all flown in worse conditions than that before. And we'd flown about two-thirds of the way up to Mallacoota, and we caught the very end of a Mayday call which came over from Standerside, which was the name of the vessel that was in distress out there. Mm And uh, we managed to get their position offshore, which is 60 mile out to sea. We heard their yacht had been rolled and was severely damaged and taking water quite rapidly. And we heard that there were 12 men on board, many of whom were injured and that everyone needed immediate evacuation. Well, hearing that there were 12 men on board, you know, we thought we might get stuck out there for a fairly lengthy time trying to assist them. So we thought it might be wise if we quickly landed at Mallacoota where we had a couple of extra drums of fuel stashed and topped up the fuel tanks before we headed out. So we quickly sat down in Malacuta, pumped a couple of drums of fuel in, and then ventured out off over the coast. And we'd flown about five minutes out off over the ocean, and the weather just started to deteriorate, where the helicopter would be buffeted around a little bit more violently. The sea state was growing a little bit more chaotic. And knowing that I'm the person that's got to get out into it when you get Mm. out there, you're keeping a close eye just on how big and rough things are getting down below. And I remember looking out the the window thinking, gee, you know, these waves look about 10 or 15 feet high, certainly bigger than anything I'd ever been involved in before, and I could feel this bit of uneasiness just creep into the back of my mindset, you know, but Mm. I never said anything to others, we just continued on out, and the further we got out, the weather just grew worse and worse to the point where the helicopter would fly along okay for 30 or 40 second periods at a time. And all of a sudden, it would be hit by these violent wind gusts that would hit the aircraft with that much force. At one stage, there, I was blown completely off my feet onto the floor on my back, forcing me to scramble to my seat and buckle myself in. And at this stage, I was estimating the sea state to be somewhere around 20 to 25 feet high, just bigger than anything I'd ever witnessed in my life. And I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit, but I was feeling actually quite frightened about being out in amongst all this at this particular time. Again, I never said anything to the other two. We just continued on out. And the further we got out, the more things deteriorated. And uh, the ocean, it just looked like somebody had draped a white veil across it, you know, as far as you could possibly see. There was just nothing but these masses of foaming, chaotic white water everywhere you looked, and there were no set directions to the waves. And when we arrived out over the scene, it was just something like you'd expect to see in a movie, you know. We could see stand aside down there bobbing around in the ocean one moment, the next moment these waves would roll through 20, 30, 40 feet high and they would just completely swamp her and swallow her up and she'd disappear and you'd go, oh no, no, she's gone. And as you continued to circle and search, all of a sudden you'd see a burst to the surface again, a crest of one of these waves and you'd hear the winch crew and go, oh no, no, here she is, she's over here, I can still see people on her decks. and. For that first 15 minutes we are out there just circling and, and hovering above them, Just we were just trying to figure out what on earth it is we could do to, mm. to try and get out there and help them. And for that first 15 minutes we were hovering and circling above them at 80 feet above the surface of the ocean. And during that time we had waves reach up within 10 feet of the skids of the helicopter or three metres of the skids of the helicopter. And I was in the back there looking out the window just blown away with what I was seeing. I was thinking to myself, this is just madness. There's there's no way I'm going to be able to get out into this and rescue anyone. If anyone gets out into this, you're just going to be killed. And as with every rescue you do, you know, we always discuss amongst ourselves as a, as a team as to whether you're even going to attempt it or not, because as you know, regardless of what's going on down below, the safety of the crew and the helicopter mm. has to come foremost. And mm-hmm. as I say, I was in the back there looking out the window thinking, you know, this is just impossible and and suicide, you know, if anyone got out into this. When I heard the pilot say, oh, yeah, I'm happy to give it a go. (laughs) He is. (laughs) (laughs) I then heard the winch crewman say, oh, well, we've managed to survive this far. If you're happy, I'm happy. Well, when I didn't answer straight away, their two heads turned and looked at me in the back and I've looked up at them and said, well, yeah. (laughs) If you two guys are happy, I'm happy.
0: That old Aussie spirit. Yeah, that old Aussie
1: spirit, yeah. So, you know, once you've decided as a team, you know, that you're going to attempt these rescues. Two against one. yeah, Yeah. You then have to decide how you're going to do it. Now, in these instances, you normally only have three options. Your first option is to hover over the top of the yacht, lower the paramedic down onto the hard deck and rescue them from there. Now, that option was immediately discarded because one moment the yacht could be sitting in a... 30 foot trough. The next moment, it could be sitting a a crest of a 60 foot wave. So, to try and winch anybody down onto that, if you weren't killed, you'd be seriously injured. So, Mm. we left that option alone. Another option you have is if they have a life raft, you can get them to tether the life raft to the yacht, lower the paramedic down into the life raft, and rescue them from there. Now, using a life raft in this fashion comes with its own set of issues, but if it doesn't, you know, if it strikes you, it's not going to hurt you anywhere near as much as a, a hard deck of a yacht is going to. If they don't have a life raft, your last ditch option then is to have these men jump into the ocean one at a time and try and rescue them from there. Now, we'd had a report that many of these men were injured, and uh, one of them was reported to you know have a, a broken leg, another one was reported to have uh, fingers severed, and there were several with some type of head injury, and we weren't sure about their conscious state, so... To have these men jump into the ocean with these sorts of injuries in those sea conditions, again, to me, just seemed like suicide. There was no guarantee that they could even reach them if they did such a thing. But fortunately, they had two six-man life rafts on board their yacht. Twelve men on board, two six-man life rafts, plenty. So we took that life raft option. The first life raft they deployed failed to inflate and sank This now left them with one six-man life raft of the 12 of them. And it was just plain to see that every minute these men were left out there, their situation was getting worse. And if somebody didn't do something and do it quickly, well, they were going to perish. They deployed the second life raft. That one inflated. They tethered it to the yacht, and that one's the one we used for the rescues. And as I say, I was in the... In the back there, um, sitting in the aircraft and all decked out, ready to go. And to conduct, when you conduct the winching, it's all done from the rear of the helicopter, and, uh, which is behind the pilot's head. And the pilot is actually unable to see what's going on down below. It's actually the winch crewman who controls the movement of the helicopter, talking to the pilot, painting him a verbal picture of what's going on down below, telling him to move the aircraft forward, back, left, right, up or down a mm-hmm. certain distance so he can pinpoint the paramedic into a particular target. So the winch crewman climbs into the back to to commence the winching and he's checking me up and down, checking my harness and making sure I got all my uh, emergency equipment and when he was happy that I was ready to go, he gave me a thumbs up and a big smile and I gave him a thumbs up back and uh, he started yelling at me, motioning me over towards the door, telling me to get closer to the door and... um, if you've never seen a Bell 412 helicopter up close or not, they've got a huge sliding door on it. And when you open this, slide this door back and open it up, it actually exposes the whole interior of the helicopter. Well, when he slid this door back and opened it up, we were hit with this needle-type rain and these winds with such ferocity, you couldn't look outside. The rain striking on any bare skin actually caused you pain. And you you will often hear people describe hurricane force winds, they say things to you like, oh, it sounded like a train was coming through the place. You know, I couldn't I couldn't tell you it sounded like a train, but I can tell you the noise of the winds striking the frame of the helicopter overwhelmed the noise coming from its two jet engines. And that just increased my anxiety and my fear up another three or four levels, my heart rate up another 20 beats if it wasn't beating fast enough already. And I was sitting on the floor there, just petrified at the thought of having to get out in amongst all this. And while I was sitting there, there's another small door we have to open up on the helicopter to conduct the winching, and we call this the quarter door. It's just a very narrow, rectangular door. When the winch crewman cracked this door to open it up, the winds caught it. They snatched it out of his hands, It blew it clean forward off its gas struts, it smashed round forward into the pilot's door and got wedged in underneath the pilot's door handle, which now meant that if we happened to ditch in the ocean, this pilot has lost his primary means of exit or escape and he would have to find some other way to, to get out of a sinking helicopter. And I was sitting on the floor there watching all this unfold, just thinking to myself, no no way, this is just madness. We've got to have a, we've got to have a rethink about this whole thing. And I was trying to catch the eye of the winch crewman to look at him you know, and give him this concerned look that I had. And when I finally caught his eye... He just winked at me and he told me to get out onto the skids, you know. <laughs> so And off you went. Off I went. I climbed out onto the skids and I was standing there waiting to be lowered down. And all of a sudden, the, the winch crewman, he reached out and he grabbed me by the shoulders and he just dragged me partway back into the helicopter and he yelled in my ear. And he said, Pete, he said, mate, this is it. Everything's up to you from here on in. From this moment on, you call all the shots. He said, when you've had enough, you just say. I looked back at him and said, mate, I've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think he thought I was joking because he just laughed and started to lower me down. So. <laughs> well, I thought the waves were big from up in the helicopter, man. When I got down there in the ocean, I was immediately hit with this wave, which I can only estimate to be somewhere around 40 feet high. It was oh just gosh. A, the biggest moving mass of any substance I'd ever seen. There was nothing I could do about it. I just had to sit in the water, watch this thing this build up, broke over the top of me, it was tumbling me over and over. And I didn't know which way I was up or down. I was kicking my legs in any direction to try and get out of it. And uh, when you're in this situation, your, your breath hold capability is reduced to about one-tenth of its normal volume. And mm. I run out of air. I started swallowing mouthfuls of salt water and I was thinking to myself, I'm going to drown here straight away. and I haven't even attempted to get to anybody yet. And all of a sudden, I just felt the harness snap tight around my body and drag me back through the ocean. And I remember just bursting out into the sky, swinging like this big pendulum on the end of the cable and coughing and spluttering. And they'd move over close to the life raft and they'd try and pin me, pinpoint me into the raft, but they'd miss. And I'd land back in the ocean and more waves would just hit me and, and wash me further back. And if that didn't happen, when they got close to dropping me into the life raft, the helicopter would be blown off course by these violent wind gusts, you know, with me being attached to the cable, mm. i just get dragged wherever that went. And if that wasn't happening, when they got close to pinpointing me into the life raft, the yacht would be picked up by these huge waves and dragged 50 or 60 feet further on, which would drag the life raft with it. So for the next 20 minutes I was down there in the water, we just played this game of chasey with this life raft. And... Uh, right throughout this 20 minutes with each wave I had to battle, each try, effort trying to get to the life raft, I could just feel the energy being sucked out of me. And mm. I just didn't know how much longer I could continue this on for. And at the end of this 20-minute mark, I just felt myself being lifted back up out of the water and up into the back up to the aircraft. And when I got up to the door of the helicopter, the winch crewman was there on his knees and he had his hands out to the side, shaking his head and shrugging his shoulders as if to say, well, I don't know, you know, it's just not working. And it was right at that time I knew, and, and I'm pretty sure we all knew, that if we didn't change what we were doing, come up with some other strategy, idea, and adapt to these conditions somehow, then we would fail and mm. we would be going home empty-handed. And in the back of our minds, we knew what that was going to mean for these, these men and you'd down And you are already there.
0: committed now. Yeah. You're in it now. That's
1: right. Mm. You yeah, know, we, we'd we committed ourselves. and. Mm. Um for the next one or two minutes, I just sat on the floor in absolute silence while we circled, just trying to come up with some other idea. And I said to the winch crewman, I said, look, just have one more go. Stop trying to pinpoint me directly into the life raft. Just dump me in the ocean as close as you can to it and let out a lot more loose winch cable. And if the opportunity arises, I'll try and swim that last bit of distance to the raft. Now, one of the things the winch crewman does not like to do is let out a whole heap of loose winch cable. It's extremely dangerous to do so. It can get entangled around any damage any rigging, trailing from the yacht or around the yacht or the life raft itself or around the rescuer's body as well. It's a, a six millimetre steel cable, stainless steel cable. It's extremely heavy for the rescuer to, to drag through the water. It fatigues him twice as quickly as, as what it normally would. So they'd rather keep the cable taut to reduce those dangers in your fatigue levels. Mm-hmm. But that that uh, technique clearly wasn't working. So he just nodded his head, acknowledged what I said, and he threw me back in the ocean. And I landed about 10 or 15 feet from the raft, and it took me three or four more attempts. But all of a sudden, I just got this break in the ocean state, and I started kicking my legs like crazy towards the raft. And I suddenly found myself at the side of it, and I grabbed hold of the edge and flung myself over and in. And when you go down to rescue somebody, you have to take down a particular harness to to lift them up in. And the the harness we used on this occasion was just a simple belt. You know, It wraps around their back, sits up underneath their armpits. You click it up at the front, and when you're ready to be winched out, you just hold your arm out horizontally. You give the thumbs up to the winch crewman. He can see that you're ready to go, and then out you're lifted. It, it's not a very secure device to put anyone in. If they lift their arms up or they're forced up at all for any reason, they can slip straight back out into the ocean. But it was just the quickest technique we had that we could use mm. to get them out of the environment. That they were in before they were lost, and I just remember flinging this thing around this yachtsman's back and clicking it up at the front. And I threw my arm out, gave the thumbs up, and the next minute we were just reefed out of the life raft like this, flying through the air, and we we crashed back into the ocean. And the next minute we were lifted up, and we're heading up towards the 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 aircraft. And I tell you to have somebody in this harness being winched up to the helicopter at this point in time after everything that we had to go through to finally get to this point in time, for me personally, it was just a feeling of absolute elation, Mm. absolute satisfaction. And I've never felt the strength of this feeling either prior to this incident or since this incident on that day. And I know it might sound wrong to you now as you sit here, but in my mind right there and then for that moment, I didn't care if I didn't rescue any of the other men. I just thought to myself, you know, thank God I didn't give up before and we've yeah, at least got one of these men, one. we can get home, you know, mm. and the, the whole rescue mission hasn't been in vain. And I got him up to the aircraft, I just yelled at him and said, Get in and get back. And he didn't have to be told twice to do that. He <laughs> scrambled in. And right at that time, you know, my confidence just did this mm. 180 degree turnaround. Totally. I felt fantastic. guy. I had this big smile beaming across my face and the winch crewman had a big smile Mm. beaming across his and, you know, we said we did it, we managed to get one. And we thought, well, if we managed to get one using that technique, why don't we stick with that and see if we can get another one, you know? So that's what we did. We just stuck with that technique time and time again. Each time we went down, we're managing now to bring someone else back up. But with each rescue, it was taking me two and three and sometimes four efforts or attempts to get to the life raft. And, I could feel the energy just being drained out of me and I knew that there was going to be a point in time somewhere here that I just wasn't going to be able to continue and and people would be left behind and I wasn't only you know battling you know my own fears and and anxieties and uh, and the sea state I was you know I was tr- I knew we had uh, limited fuel on the aircraft I was working at such a frantic pace to try and get as many as we could before the pilot had to call it. so this combination of things just worked against you and just drained you of energy so quickly. A lot of my energy was was spent just trying to keep my own head above the surface of the ocean to get that next breath of air down into my own lungs, you know, mm-hmm. to keep myself alive mm-hmm. throughout this thing, you know. And there were two times down there that I thought that my life was over and I wouldn't be going home myself. And one of those times was the fifth rescue. And I remember being in the life raft and I was... I was Near exhaustion, I was having a lot of trouble trying to thread the harness around this yachtsman's back. It was getting entangled in his life jacket and his clothing and some of the rigging which was in the life raft. And I just became tunnel visioned on what I was doing. And unbeknownst to me, there was this huge wave building in the background, which the pilot told me later on when we were back on dry land and the rescues were all over. He said he estimated this particular wave to be 80 feet high, 25 meters That's high.
0: Unbelievable.
1: The pilot said he was hovering the helicopter at 80 feet when all of a sudden this yacht just appeared across to this wave in the windscreen of the aircraft and was rolling forward on this wave about to strike the helicopter. And he just had to instinctively, without any warning to anyone, just grab the controls, he, th- he climbed rapidly and threw the aircraft away to the left to avoid being hit by the yacht. And all I remember doing in the life raft was just going click with the harness, getting it done up around this yachtsman's back and and uh, and just exploding out of the life raft. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it, like being caught in an explosion where you're stationary one moment then just hurtling through the air the next. And when you're connected to the winch cable uh, the, as a rescuer, you're connected up front ways. So it reefed me out of the life raft front ways with that much speed and force i was snapped back in this severe u shape and i just felt this immediate pain in my lower back it felt like two bolts of lightning shot down both my legs mm-hmm. both my feet started to get went numb and started to tingle you know and as a paramedic you know now that you're in a bit of trouble and mm-hmm. with the whipping action that dragged us out we landed on the face of this 80 foot wave which just I don't know how else to say it, but it devoured us. It just swallowed us up and we just tumbled and tumbled and tumbled. And you just knew there was, you couldn't combat it. You couldn't compete against it. You were completely at its mercy. And to give you an indication of the, The forces that were there, there with the water, I was trying to uh, bring my arms and legs in close to my body to try and curl up in a ball to protect myself. But the force was such I couldn't even do that. My arms and legs were just flailing all over the place. And although this and and although this incident happened very quickly, um, there was there was this thing at this moment of clarity in my mind where it was like a peaceful few seconds where I just said to myself, "Well, Peter, this is it." this is the way it's all going to end and, and I won't be going home. And I, and I was completely, 100% resigned to the fact that it was all over for me and, and this was the way I was going to go. And it was just this, I don't know how to describe to describe it, it was just like this peaceful moment of acceptance. And I had no idea whether the survival was still in, the yachtsman was still in his harness. So I, I figured not because there's such a loosely fitting um, restraint we had on him. And, all of a sudden I just felt the harness snap tight again around my body. was dragging me back in some other direction through water and through the waves and I just remember bursting out into the sky again and and uh, I was coughing and spluttering and, and bringing up salt water and lo and behold the survivor, the yachtsman, was still hanging in his harness, you know, and he wasn't looking very happy, you know, but he was still certainly there. Yeah. And he didn't have to be told twice to get in the helicopter yeah, door once we made it up yeah. there either, but um, the... The other time where I thought I was in big trouble was the very last rescue. And I remember sitting on the floor of the helicopter just sucking air madly down into my lungs to try and muster up the, the energy to go down again. And, um, you know, as I mentioned before, it, I found it not only a, a physical battle, it was quite a, a psychological battle out there too. Absolutely. You know, the whole way through, my brain was saying to me, you know, Peter, don't get down again. Don't, just tell them you can't do it. You know, they'll understand. You know, they can see that it, how tough it is. You know, and I was battling with these two. You know, while your brain's saying that, your heart is saying the opposite. You know, so I was battling with these two inner emotions. I suppose. You know, I wanted to say it, but I, I, I just thought perhaps I could maybe get one more and. I just looked up at the winch crewman and and nodded my head to let him know I was ready to go again and he threw me back in the ocean and I I landed in the water and I knew as soon as I'd hit the water I'd made the wrong decision. I I just couldn't move, I couldn't move my arms, I couldn't move my legs, I was laying face down in the water, Um, I was just floating there like this dead fish and I could feel the the helicopter dragging me through the, the water with waves breaking over the top of me and I was trying to get my head above the surface to get a breath of air in my lungs and when I finally got my head above the surface right in front of me was the life raft and I remember reaching out and grabbing hold of the rope which runs around the outside of the raft and I grabbed hold of the rope and I was hanging there under the rope and thinking to myself well it's pointless of heaven being here because I, I haven't even got the strength to, to climb up over the side of this thing and get in and while I was hanging there wondering what we are going to do there were a few smaller waves just rolling through and they were lifting my body up and I... I just thought, well, I'll try and use the lift of one of these waves to get me up over the edge, and I'll roll in over the edge, and that's what I did. I waited for one of these little waves to roll through. It lifted me up, and I rolled in over the edge of the raft, and I landed in the raft on my back, and I was laying there looking up at the sky thinking to myself, well, it's pointless me even being here because I'm the one that needs rescuing now, and uh, I was just that exhausted I couldn't move. And while I was laying there, I just felt this severe stabbing pain high up in my left thigh, my left groin and I've lifted up my head to look down at my my leg to see what was causing the pain and unbeknownst to me, with the roll in, the cable had wrapped several times around my upper thigh and was becoming tighter and tighter with each movement of the raft and the helicopter. And You know, know, you're taught when you first come onto the aircraft that if you get this cable wrapped around you and it comes taut, all of a sudden there will be enough force there to either cut you in half or or lose a limb. well, it's amazing how much energy you can muster if you think you're going to lose your leg. Yeah. And I remember rapidly leaning forward and unraveled the cable from, from around my leg and I then rolled over on top of this yachtsman who was laying in there in the raft hanging on. And I mean, I literally rolled on top of him. My body was laying on top of his body. My face had collapsed in against his face. You know, he must have thought, "Who is this weirdo?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but and it seemed like forever. I struggled for a long time to get the harness around his back, but I got it round and and I and I'd done it up. And I went to hold my arm out horizontal to give the thumbs up to the winch crew and to let him know we were ready to be winched out. And I only got my arm out about halfway, and it just collapsed down by my side. And I tried to get it out again, and got it out about halfway, and again it fell down. And I couldn't believe I didn't have the strength to hold my arm out horizontal to give the thumbs up and it took me multiple attempts and then all of a sudden the winch this this yachtsman who saw my dilemma this guy I was actually rescuing he saw the trouble I was having and he actually held my arm up for me while I <laughs> while I gave the thumbs up and the winch crew eventually got the the message and then out we were lifted and when you actually lift uh when you rescue somebody in the harness that we put them in, they actually, the the person being rescued hangs a bit lower than what you do. Their head level sits about your chest level there somewhere, and you're supposed to wrap your legs around their body to support them so they don't slip out, and your arms around their head to protect them. But I remember I just couldn't do it. I was just hanging on the end of my hook like this wet rag doll, and I then just began this this uncontrollable <laughs> vomiting all over the over the top of this poor man's head and it's down my his back part. and <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah, I don't think he appreciated it very much. But Probably it was not. Just,
0: Oh he might he might not have minded too much. Yeah. He did get washed off by the way, he did get washed it yeah.
1: eventually, yeah. But it was just uncontrollable. I just, it was just a It of a lot of a bit <laughs> anyway, uh, of a of a other of vivid pictures of have of this whole of was getting this particular man of to the of of the aircraft. of when the looked inside the of all I could see was this mass of arms and legs and heads stacked to the roof of the interior of the helicopter. And I looked in and I'm thinking to myself, my God, there's nowhere to put this man. Don't tell me we have to put him back. And a few arms just reached out. They grabbed him and they they squashed him in there somewhere. I'm not sure where they put him. But they, they squashed him in there somewhere. And there was always that little bit of floor there left for me. And I remember, you know, just collapsing on the floor, still vomiting and dry reaching out the door. And I knew then that I was beaten and I just wasn't able to go mm. again. And I turned around and looked up at the winch crew and to tell him exactly that, you know, and he was on his knees there leaning over the top of me with this silly look on his face. And he's. I was just about to tell him that, you know, that, mate, that's, I, can't, I can't handle this anymore. And he's pointing outside, wanting me to look at something. As I turned my head to look outside what he's pointing at, here was the second rescue helicopter just arrived and they were waiting for us to get out of the way so they could pick up the remaining survivors and uh, and, and we could get out of there. You know, well, that was all that I needed. I just looked back at the winch crewman and I said, that is it. I've had enough, you know. And he said, well, can you close the door? You know? And I couldn't. I didn't have enough strength to close the door. He had to drag it shut and we then just headed off back into the coast of Mallacoota and we never really said anything all the way back in. We're really just we're being blown around still violently in in this hurricane that we're in. And um,
0: What was the mood like in the. So, how many in
1: total? In the end, we ended up rescuing eight of those yachtsmen, yeah.
0: And what was the mood like on the way back in,
1: yeah, in well, the aircraft? Well, they were very happy. They were yeah. very happy until the pilot said, halfway back in, uh, yelled at us. He was losing altitude and power, and the pilot turned and said, Everyone prepare to ditch, we're going in which means, you know, we were, he was losing power in the engines and the storm was forcing us down, the weight of the helicopter, all, all the weight we had in, because we were a maximum capacity. Like
0: a recurring nightmare yeah, for these and, people. and
1: I just remember the look on these fa- the face <sighs> of these men. They were, they've gone from this big smile and patting everyone on the back to just, you're kidding, you know, we're going to end up back in and now We don't even have a yacht, you know. But the pilot managed to keep it up and, and, and keep flying, and we got back to, um, we got back to land and when we landed all these, the doors were on the helicopter were ripped open and all these men were dragged out and wished away in various ambulances and I never got a chance to speak to any of them at all. We were, when we, like when we were unloaded, they asked us to quickly refuel and get back out and search for, there was another, there were other multiple yachts then in, in distress out there and they needed assistance. So yeah, not a lot of time for rest.
0: And so did you go out?
1: We went out. Yeah, we mm. searched. Uh, we had to go out. We were the only helicopter that, at that stage available. And um, one of the things I did mention to you the other day was uh, that second helicopter that rescued the last four from our yacht. They'd landed behind us um, about half an hour later, and they were they were asked to go out and refuel, uh, go out and and search as well. But as I said to you, you know, before you fly the the winch crew and the pilot, they go around and they check the aircraft. Well. The winch crewman was checking their aircraft, and he just reached up and he grabbed hold of the hook on their winch, just gave it a bit of a twist and a turn to have a look at it, and it broke off in his hand. So that's how dangerous it could have been, you know, if they'd put anyone into that hook to get winched up or down, that could, that would oh have broken goodness. off with a person on it. So that made their aircraft US to to go and do any search and rescue. So we had to go back out, and we searched well into the night until it was just too dark and dangerous to be out there and... Um, we just had to call it quits and come back in and land and a fresh crew would go out at first light the next morning when it was much, much safer.
0: Were you crook that whole time when you were out searching? Like, did you just feel rotten?
1: I wasn't. I was never sick. I was never seasick. I was scared. I was petrified, mm. absolutely petrified, uh, frightened. Uh, the fear. It's a fear I've never known before. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And
0: touch on that. I remember when we were talking about this last week, there was something about your harness or the the clip, and you actually changed. Yeah. Changed that for for. Yeah. I guess the the flight paramedics. What is it called? That the, the carabine carabiner carabine yeah. or a
1: carabineer is is the hook which uh, is on your harness, which hook allows you to hook onto the mm. winch hook that you know onto the winch. And uh, we we're using an old, I suppose, an old style carabiner, which had a a uh, screw gate what they call a screw gate so you you hook yourself onto the other hook onto the winch hook mm. and you you close the latch and then you screw it up uh, it takes about 5 or 6 turns to screw that up to lock to lock that in so you don't come off the hook while you're in the water or being winched or or at any stage and it was after about the third winch or the third rescue I'd done I was about to be put out into the water again and the, I just felt the winch crewman and sort of Give me a backhand across the shoulder and he pointed at the carabiner on my side on the winch and it was sitting there open. The screw gate had come open and the latch had fallen open. So I was on a bare hook and he's pointing at it, going, What's going on here? You've been playing with it, you know, and I hadn't touched it at all, you know, this thing had come undone all by itself. Mm. So we've closed it, we screwed it up again and he put me back down and lo and behold, two winches later, exactly the same thing happened. He's, he's tapped me on the shoulder again and he's pointed at it again and I've just, you know, put my arms in the air and go, I don't know what's going on. So I just had to keep an eye on it, making sure it was done up, mm. you know, when I had the chance. So that uh, prompted a change in the, the equipment that um, that came out of the, the debrief afterwards. You know, we, we went with a more upgraded carabiner, which is a spring lock and a, and a spring uh, spring mm. lock all by itself. It's just a one-action move. It, it locks, unlocks and locks itself. So um yeah, you don't have to worry about those sorts of things yeah, happening. Yeah, that's a bit yeah. to worry about, isn't it? Yeah, so and we had a lot of luck. That was luck. Yeah, as
0: well. Like um, storm. You said that the grading of the storm. Yeah. this This incident in actually, the Beaufort
1: scale. Yeah. um In the Beaufort scale, it was a twelve plus, which is your highest level. Mm. It, it's hurricane, uh, tornado force. So mm. it doesn't get any higher than that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And after it was after this race that they changed the rules on the weather and. Cancelling, can you go through that? That's that right. Yeah. That
1: probably um with the inquest, the meteorological department they sort of well, for want of better words, they probably got the biggest kick in the backside. Um what back then they they never predicted the severity of the storm. Everyone knew there was gonna be a storm, but the severity mm-hmm. wasn't predicted. And mm-hmm. um I'm not sure whether that's because they couldn't or just because that they didn't. Um, but now it's mandatory that they have to predict the severity of the storm, and if it gets to a certain level, the race won't go ahead. Um, and the yachting um, company that runs the race they they have the ability to turn, to call off the race, which um, you know if the if they think it's too dangerous. Um, insurance wise, that insurance um, cost has gone up with each yacht that enters. So. Mm. Um, yeah, so there's been quite a few a lot changes. Of came
0: out of that, yeah,
1: yeah. Also, um, it's mandatory now that they test their life rafts every. It's either twelve months or two years. It might be two years, I think. They have to inflate their life rafts to test, and they have to get them tested. Whereas this one that had that didn't inflate had been sitting on the deck of the yacht for eight years, hadn't mm. hadn't been tested, and that's why it didn't inflate and sank. So um, that's one of the other things that come out. So all your equipment had to be tested regularly. So, mm. Yeah.
0: And so that whole journey and that whole rescue and everything you then went on um, to on your own journey going around the world yeah and talking about this story and and um, can you just talk about that for a little bit
1: Yeah it was um it was not something I ever wanted to do or or had in, in my mind and no ambition to do it all but uh, as part I was team manager of the the helicopter base there for 14 years and as part of that role you asked to go out and talk to community groups, you know, your local community groups, and you promote the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Not, not that you needed funds for it, because it was a government-funded aircraft, but people donated money anyway, which allowed us to buy equipment. But mm. so I would go out, and you would just, whether it be Probus or Apex clubs, those sorts of community support groups, and I used the the um, the helicopter or, or this job, particular job, as a tool to promote the aircraft and the Type of paramedics that you have working on it, mm. you know, and I um the presentation became so popular that I was getting asked to go around to you know a bit more within the state, different towns and stuff, and then it got bigger and bigger. And uh, this one group heard about it, and uh, organisation heard about it, and they had a conference in Kuala Lumpur. I remember the very first time, and they asked me to. They said, "Would I come to Kuala Lumpur at their conference and do this and present this presentation?" I don't I just thought, man, this is just too over the top it's just you want me to go overseas and talk about this you know You're shiny, Pete. it's just a job you know <laughs> this is what we do anyway i went over and i did the presentation there it was it was so well received yeah that this person got in touch the guy that ran it got in touch with the speaker's bureau and the speaker's bureau rang me up and said oh would you mind us speaking at a uh, another they had a showcase what well, they have a showcase each year where all the up and coming speakers get on or current speakers get on and you just get up there and do a talk in front of corporate people and they asked me to come and do the talk and it just grew its own legs from there and own wings and it just took me, it's taken me all around the world and Mm. around Australia, Australasia, multiple, multiple times for the last 21 years. It's just been, I I never thought I'd be, you know, when they first, the Speakers Bureau first picked me up, they said, you know, you were speaking on this for 10 years and I said, i have be speaking on this for ten months, let alone ten years. And they said, No, you watch well, it wasn't only ten years, it was it was twenty years. And it just that's just I don't know, it's the messages in it, I think. It's and, an
0: incredible story of like yeah. overcoming fear and strength and it saving it, people it, and digging deep, you know?
1: It is. It's got all those, um, I suppose cliche things that or messages in it, you know, it's about overcoming your fears, yeah. your challenges and working as a team and failing and, and adapting and success yeah. and it's got all those in it and and it's been just a, a journey um, that I just never thought I'd be on and I've met some of the most amazing people in the world, you know. Um, you know just met the Queen, you know, got a personal introduction to the Queen. And, um,
0: <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, all these major <laughs>
1: sportsmen and um, world-class Queen. Olympians and I've Dude. dined with our Prime Ministers and, you know, it's just I could go on but it just sounds too big-headed to name all these people. But it's a thrill, you know, it's a great thrill. Absolutely. and But I tell you, the biggest thrill and biggest reward out of this whole thing was being invited back to South Australia to meet these men that I'd oh, rescued. how was and that? How did that go? I tell you, to turn up there that night.
0: Did they cry? And, oh, to cry. And oh, meet gosh. these
1: men and see the smiles on their faces and the smiles on their faces of their wives, their girlfriends, mm. their mums and dads, mm. and just feel you know, the warmth mm. that the was gratitude. extended to me on that evening. It's worth more to me than any of those wow. other awards ever could. And that's a memory. That will live with me forever.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it was a very emotional. We all turned into emotional wrecks that night. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, it would have taken uh,
0: you back to the moment too, you know, a little well, bit.
1: It well, was, it was one of those, um see, I kept trying to uh, just, everyone kept, I was, you know, everyone kept saying to me, you know, it's a great job you've done, you know, to realise what you've done, you know, and. And I go, yeah, yeah, you know, but you know, I was just rostered on, and you know, it was it was a, a big job, but we and we were lucky, we had a lot of luck, you know, and came our way, and and it wasn't, and I was trying to sort of keep it down, I suppose, and it wasn't until I got there that night and saw these men, and we just broke down in tears, and it was really then that only I really sort of realised that this has had far more the gravity an of impact it. Mm. Um, than than what I was sort of letting it, and being able to, you know, people said to me, oh, did you? do you have dreams about this? And in and, and actual fact, I did. For the first for the first five nights after the rescue, I would wake up at about 3 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning and my eyes would spring awake and I'd had this dream that I didn't rescue anyone. I, I rescued that we'd lost everyone. It was all a failure. And then I'd wake up and I'd go, Oh no no, gee, that's no, that's right. We that's all right. We did. We rescued everyone. Everything's all mm. right. And I had this for five nights in a row, and then nothing after that. No, I, I I think that's uh, an example of the pressure that that the subconscious pressure that goes totally. on in your mind. You know, um, it was a as a, a even though it was a success story, the pressure that's put on you emotionally, physically, does embed itself in your brain there somewhere, and it, it does. That's
0: a lot of pressure for one person. You know, like for you. I mean, essentially, when you were put in there, like, it it's on you, you know.
1: It—it it, it is. Even though but it was a team effort. And it yeah. is your role. Yeah.
0: It is your role, mm. but that's not something that you would ever think <laughs> would ever happen either. No, no, that's right. You know, right. like, you were just unbreakable.
1: It was just, um, look, it was a once-in-a-hundred-year storm. It was one out of the box. And I i just happened to be the, hel- the, the paramedic that was rostered on that day. And, you know, we had a lot of... We had a lot of things go wrong. We we had a lot of luck, and uh, my mother tells me we even had some divine help out there. You know, it wasn't only you rescuing those people. Because there was one stage before I, I think I mentioned to you last week. There was a stage there, before I even got out the door. I was sitting there on the floor, petrified at the thought of having to get into this, and the fear, the fear inside me was just controlling everything I did. I couldn't couldn't keep my hands still. You know, and. That first first twenty minutes, I was down there in the water. I was petrified. I was. I just thought I was going to drown for that whole twenty minutes. And when I got back up into the aircraft, and we sat there after failing and not being able to for that first twenty minutes, not being able to get to anyone, I, was, I remember just sitting there on the floor, and you could call it a prayer because I, I would think I, I think I was asking someone. I was, and I, I remember saying to myself, or asking someone. I said in my head or in my mind can you please just get, if I could just please get rid of this fear, can you please get rid of the fear? And all of a sudden, click, like that, gone. Wow. It was just gone, Riz. Mm. And I have no answer for it, but it was gone. As the minute those words left my lips, gone, completely gone. And there was no fear and and the result was what it was. We ended up rescuing all these guys. And I, my Mum's always been a one a, a believer and and in the spiritual side of things. And, I'm a bit
0: spiritual, but uh, I think this yeah. job opens you up to that a lot. Yeah. And a, an experience like that, and then yeah. the waves helping you up a little bit. You know, there's something yeah. going on there, man. Yeah, that's
1: right. There were there were some things that some things that happened that yeah you, mm. you couldn't the like you can put down as luck. Yeah, and I, my mother would be the only one that I I. You know, sort of originally mentioned this thing too. Mm. I was a bit embarrassed about sort of saying that I asked for help, and and she said, you know, it wasn't only you risking people out there. You had some help, you know, you mm. had you had other help out there as well. And uh, you know, I believe her. I think she's yeah, right, so, definitely. Yeah. Mm.
0: What an amazing, amazing story. Honestly, I've heard that you tell me that. I think a couple of times, but every time I hear it, I just love it more. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. What advice would you you know, you've had such an incredible career. You've had so many roles. You've worked in different states. You've worked, you know, on road, up in the air. What advice, I guess, would you give to paramedics wanting to follow that sort of path, mm. I guess? Like what, what would you,
1: my, you know, tell look, my, them to do? My advice would be that if if that's your ambition and you want to do it, grab it with both hands and go and do it. Don't. Don't listen to what other people are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's any negativi- negativity around your goal that you want, don't listen to it. Um, people said to me, I found out later on uh, when I first started to do MICA. I-, I was always a fitness fanatic, always have been. And I played, mm-hmm. and all, everyone said to me, "I'll never pass MICA."
0: And MICA for the
1: mobile intensive care, which is a, a yeah, qualification this is a higher. In, that's grade, the highest. Yes yeah, grade you can get in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard feedback after I actually passed the micro exam that people were saying he won't pass, he's just a jock, you know, just a jock. And if, if I'd heard that and listened to that, that might have – it could have influenced me or it, it probably wouldn't have – it makes me go harder actually at things. But they're the sorts of things people don't think you can do it. Some people might tell you that they don't think you can do mm-hmm. it. If you want to do it, grab it with both hands and go for it and, mm-hmm. and put every effort into your, to your goal because you'll get there. You will get there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just, that's probably the best advice I can give. If it's your dream and you want to do it, go for it. Go for it and grab it with both hands and put the work in. you got to put the work in. There's no easy way to do it. Mm. Um, But once you get there and you achieve your goal, I tell you, the world opens up to you and, uh, you know, it's just opportunities come your way. It's just incredible. I could just yeah.
0: imagine there wouldn't be a more exhilarating role with what we do than that, I feel. Like it's just that. I guess the, on the aircraft, the, you yeah, mean? yeah, the aircraft. like the yeah. level up.
1: Yeah, it's the pinnacle of your your clinical uh, side of things within ambulance. It's um, you're the testing ground for all new guidelines and protocols that you know that might may eventuate down the down the line onto mm. the road crews. You know, so if there's any new you know, equipment torch. Might, Yeah, uh, they they usually use the te- the helicopter guys as the the test dummies, I suppose, uh, to try out this new equipment or this new guideline or new protocol. And mm. if it's success, um, uh, if it's a success, then usually that's handed down onto the road. So, the road crews. So, mm. yeah, it is. It's just a it's a wonderful vehicle uh, to be involved to to be involved in. Yeah. You know, to. In ambulance, uh, it's, it is. It's just another world. It's a different world. A different world. Yeah. And you
0: get a cool jumpsuit.
1: And you get a cool jumpsuit <laughs> if no one cuts the arms and legs off you. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: I won't share that photo, yeah, but no. uh, that's a fantastic photo.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, how have you found retirement? So you did you uh, always plan? Do you miss it?
1: Yeah. No, I, I've struggled. Um, I have struggled to accept that, you know, you're now, you were once this uh you had this role of importance um uh respect um and I've struggled not having that if I was completely honest yeah mm-hmm. I'd have to say it's been difficult for me you know i knew i knew i'd have that but i uh, uh, until you get in and and do and take retirement up and until you get into the middle of it and you go man All I can do now is I can play golf, I suppose, you know. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, I love playing golf and I love keeping fit and healthy still. And I've I've got all these things I do. My days are full. I'm never sitting down. I'm always doing something. But it's hard to replace ambulance, you know, and the career that you've had. But it's always something I knew in my mind that this is coming, this is going to come one day. And uh, I'm feeling a lot more comfortable with it now. But um, it's been, I have to say, yeah, it's difficult coming from that position, I suppose – I don't know it was just a an important position you had, you know you were helping people every day and and you're respected and
0: what is was your identity
1: yeah for a long it's time. your identity that's yeah. exactly right it's probably a better term, yeah, it's your identity and you're you' you haven't got that anymore you know and you've got this great skill set and this knowledge and and all this stuff you've learnt and it's laying dormant you know you should come so, teach with me. Yeah, yeah. It's so a, I'm, uh, I'm at a, <laughs> golf. Yeah, I'm the type of person that I couldn't just do dabble. You know, I'm a hundred percent in, yeah. or, or I'm right out, mm. and you know, I'd have to, yeah, I just have to go into a hundred percent, and I'm, I don't want to go back to that just yet, sort of thing. You know, Although yeah. Although time might come, and I might think about something like that, but at the moment, I'm just cruising along. I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying yeah. it. Don't get me wrong. I'm enjoying retirement. Yeah, yeah. But it's hasn't been a... Just different. Yeah.
0: And was there any... Like, did you say set a date and be like, okay, this is when I'm going to do it? Was there, like, a trigger or...
1: Yeah, no, there's always it... a date and um, I wanted to... The thing with retirement for me and thing I, I've picked up on over the years, I wanted to get out. I'd rather leave a year or two early than stay yeah, a year totally. or two late, you yeah, know, where yeah. people are looking, tapping, and here comes this old bloke. Can you just get him to get something out of the ambulance while I treat the patient. Oh, I, didn't no. want to, I didn't want to be that guy. I don't think you'd ever be that guy. <laughs> no, I know. But I, I didn't want to put anyone under that pressure at all to have to think like that. And I wanted to go out, I suppose, um, on, top. on top of my career yeah, rather than, totally. than failing. And it was like the speaking circuit. While I was getting um, the ovations that you got and the feedback that you got, I would always talk. But the minute I thought, "Nah, that's it. Mm. Um, or I got an inkling. I'd want to. I want to step off stage bef- while I'm on top, and uh, and it's my decision rather than, you know, your your story fail one day up there, you know, because it mm. just doesn't have the impact. And mm. and um, I've got out well. I, the longevity of the the pre- the speaking circuit's been something just out of this world. Yeah. And the feedback I continually get, and and it, but, well, if you didn't, if you weren't, if you you weren't impacting on people, you wouldn't get the the. Gigs that I've had, you know, and I'm, I'm just doing. I'm, I, I was away every week, every fortnight, every month. You know, I was just away. Traveling and, mm-hmm. and for all these years, it's just uh, it's been an amazing journey. But as I say, I, I wanted to get out on top. I'd rather get out on top than wait until I fail before perhaps I better go. Oh well, you yeah. were still
0: you were still very helpful with me on the STEMI job when I was <laughs> having a stroke. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, this sick. will be you one day, if not now, <laughs> if it's not now, you've been in long enough. Yeah. So well, you'll get, be yeah, that person. You'll have a lot away. of people look up to you.
0: Chipping away at it. Yeah. Um, and I guess with a uh, last question. Um, for you was throughout your career, like obviously there's jobs that are extremely challenging and um, we'd touched on that job that was really tough for you. Yeah. Um. And I'm not sure if you wanted to talk about that here, but managing your, like what advice would you give for paramedics just to manage mental health and longevity? Like what yeah. did you do?
1: Yeah, for, um, for my mental health, and mm. um, I'm quite happy to talk about that job if you want to talk about it, but um, for for my mental health, the the biggest thing that helped me was intense exercise physical mm. exercise I mm. was but I, w- I was always a fitness fanatic. and um, for, when I came home from work feeling bad about a job whether it was because of the way I handled it or because you know something went wrong or something wasn't right or you know things at work might have been going the way it went I, it's just physical exercise just I was heavily into martial arts for over 20 years which was fantastic I,
0: What was your you, nickname?
1: Uh, yeah, Chuck. I grew up with Chuck. Oh, yeah, yeah, Chuck and, who? Yeah, it was a, a a um the the guys related that to Chuck Norris yeah, somehow. Yeah. One guy, one guy, <laughs> one day mentioned that name to me, and it everyone it just, just picked sucked. up on it, and it stuck. Yeah, so I grew up in Victorian ambulance service known as Chuck. So, um, fantastic. Yeah, no, but it, physical exercise helped me. Um, was was probably the key one for me. Whenever I felt pressure. Um, uh, or even uh, emotional pressure. I, I, If I didn't go for a run, I went for a swimmer, I went for a ride, I was into triathlons he- you know, heavily for about 15 years. There. And all that training, I don't know, it just seemed to alleviate a lot of pressure and, and a lot of problems. And um, the other thing, I, if I could suggest to you, is that um, communication with s- your peers or someone you trust and you can confide in mm-hmm. has been another big one for me. Um whether it be your partner, your wife, your husband, um, boyfriend, girlfriend, anything, anybody that you can confide in um, and I, I find uh, paramedics a a good board for that you know you can because I think as a paramedic uh, it might sound a bit callous, but you need to talk about the nitty gritties of the job you need to talk about um, Everything you did, everything you saw, everything that happened, right down to the funniest details, to the macabre details, because it gets it out. It I gets agree it off your that. chest. Yeah. It gets it all out off your chest. It might sound disgusting or cold, but I tell you what, your other paramedic peer will understand where you're mm. coming from. And they know when you're releasing and venting. I certainly knew um, you pick up when people mm. are just wanting to get it off their chest and speak mm. about it. And so if you've got someone that you can trust and confide in, by all means, use them and I'm sure they will respect, you know, what you're doing. And,
0: and Did you ever find it difficult to confide in someone who wasn't, like, your wife, Isn't she's not a paramedic or in the health field, is she?
1: She wasn't. My fir- my first wife wasn't. No, yeah. no. And uh, in the early days, I...
0: Did you I, find that hard?
1: I, yeah, yeah. I bought jobs home and tried to talk about it, but it, I wasn't, it didn't work for me. And I just I, find that yeah.
0: I can't talk to no. people like I guess civilians no. about what no. we do because you watch their face change when you go into it and it's like, oh, I can't put this on you.
1: That's right, yeah. No, mm. that, that's exactly the way I felt and I stopped mm. doing that. Um, but my second, my wife now, um, she's a nurse, so it's perfect Sanding board. Yeah, yeah, she's brilliant and, and I know when she comes home and she's talking about jobs that she's mm. involved in that she just needs to get off her chest as well. So we're a good um, support in in that in that way. Yeah. So mm. for me, Riz, I'd have to say physical exercise. Keep yourself fit, healthy, clear minded mm. and uh healthy body, use, healthy mind. Yeah. Use your peers and talk about it, communicate, whether it whether it be with professional or, or just your friends or, or family or yeah, someone you can trust in. Yeah. Mm. That would certainly help you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm big yeah. on
0: exercise. I think yeah. that's really good.
1: Um, I'm not sure if you wanted me to touch on that job. Or yeah,
0: we've got we've got about 15 minutes, All so right. if you wanted to.
1: Yeah, well, this particular job was probably the, the job that affect has impacted on me and still impacts me today. If I let it, uh, you know, crawl out of its little box or I've tucked it away in. But um, this particular job, I was actually separated at the time, and I had three young children, so. Um, I'd been under a bit of pressure just from that alone. I was working on the helicopter, and um, I, I was home. I was in a. I was living by myself, um, missing my children. Didn't have a lot of access to them. Um, and this particular night, it was Christmas morning, and. Uh, I was on call at home. I, I was on an on-call. Back then we did on-call on helicopter. We flew during the day but went home on an on-call basis at night and I had a, an ambulance car. And they would use you, the, the ambulance would use your skill set throughout. if a job came in where they thought your skill set would be handy. They'd send you out in the car, just in the local community, not too far away, uh, so you could assist. And it was Christmas morning and uh, I was laying in bed and got a phone call about 5 a.m. And... Uh, I got up. The job was only about 200 metres down the road from where I lived, so I had no time to – it was a pedestrian. The job was given to me as a pedestrian. And so I had no time just to throw the you know my uniform quickly on, jump in my car. I had no time to prepare, think. Didn't even – didn't know what sort of pedestrian it was an, uh, an adult or a child. And um, I went about two or 300 metres down the road into this court, and I was confronted with this huge garbage truck which had run over a little eight-year-old boy and Crushed him. He was out riding his brand new bike he just got from Santa that morning, riding it around the court, and the garbage truck had driven into the court to pick up garbage bins. He couldn't he couldn't drive around the court because the court was too small, so he tried to reverse out, and he reversed out over this little eight year old boy, Christmas morning. And when I turned up, there was one other paramedic there by himself. He'd arrived just prior to me. Well, it it was quite obvious this little boy was deceased. Uh, The trauma was that that bad. We worked on him for a little bit, but we knew it was, was hopeless. And when a few more people started to arrive, we got a few more details. I found out that this little boy belonged to a friend of mine I grew up with, went to school with, played football with, and was good friends with. And he was living next, just in, he was at the house, it happened right out in front of his house. So this is immediate, because you know this person, this, you've got to go in and tell them that the little boys passed away. Not only that, the truck driver was also a known person to me. I went to school with him. He was in my forms growing up and he was also someone, he wasn't a close friend but he was certainly someone you'd stop and talk to, you know, how you're going or, you know, I knew his wife as well. So they were, they were people that you, you knew. So this was a very personal job, this. And for some, as I said to you, for some weird or strange reason the other paramedic said to me um, this wasn't strange the other paramedic said to me look I'll go in and tell the the father or the parents that you know he's deceased and I'm I thought for some stupid reason that oh look it might be better coming from me because I knew him I'm, I'm a friend it might come across a bit better and I could do it a bit Gentler, or I don't know. I don't know. How do you how do you do tell someone gently? It's not a good way. There's no there's no way. But Mm. I just for some reason I just thought it might be better coming from me. So I said, look, no, look, I'll go and I'll go and tell the dad. I'll go and tell the parents. And um, so I walked inside, and here he was sitting on the couch with his other two little boys beside him, just sitting there waiting for news. And I've had to walk in and, and just say to him, "Mate, I'm." I'm sorry, your little boy's gone, and his response was just not expected. It was just it was violent, you know, violent towards me. But it was it was not not directed at me, but it was, if you know what I mean. It wasn't a personal attack, I don't think. Um, But he's lost his boy Christmas Day. You know, they were there opening presents, and um, he started. He just yelling, screaming, throwing things at me and and abuse and and it was just not what I expected. I totally was I was taken by complete surprise, thinking, you know, well, why is he doing this to me? But it was such a selfish attitude on my behalf, I thought, you know, and I it was it was all wrong. You know, this whole situation was wrong. And and what that has led to today is that I can't if ever I run into this person, I, I cross the road. If I see him I I walk the other way. If I'm in a restaurant and he's there, I leave the restaurant because I'm I'm that memory, mm. you know, and I don't want to be that memory for him. I don't want him to have to see me. Um, uh, it's a it's it was just the wrong thing for me to do. I wouldn't if I had my time again, I wouldn't do it because I would have let I would have let a stranger person, someone he didn't know, go in and tell him. He I wouldn't just have known. I didn't though. know, That's but the thing. you know, it's it's a, something I I learnt well. Through experience, basically, and it wasn't a very good experience. So, if I had my time again, I wouldn't do it because that I don't that I can't talk to that him anymore or his family. Um, it was just it was just the wrong for me, it just felt the wrong thing to do afterwards after the fact. I don't think it was
0: wrong. I think that you just did the best you could in a really difficult situation and you had no idea how he was
1: going to react. I know my intentions were good, but uh. I didn't respect. I didn't expect the response, you know. And, and you can't. I, and I don't grief. blame him for the response. Don't get me wrong. I, I, how would I respond? You know? Grief is. Um, so I had. To, I left that job, yeah. just in utter devastation, and I went down to see my kids who were living with their mother. It was Christmas morning, and they were sitting around the tree, waiting to open their gifts. You know that my three little kids and I. I remember just walking there, seeing sitting around the tree, and just burst. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I just burst into tears. It was just horrible. It was a horrible job, horrible job. But, you know, that's ambulance and that's the way things go and um, it's all experience and just makes you the paramedic you are today. So, yeah, and we're all going to come across jobs like that at some stage or another. But that's one of those ones you like to keep locked in the box, you know. And, I've got a couple box yeah, ones. Yeah, but we yeah. can only
0: do what, what we can do. We're, yeah. we're all human. I think we forget that.
1: Yeah. We can yeah. only do think, our best. Yeah. Sometimes as paramedics, I think we like to think we're a bit more resilient than others, but I think it's a good point. You've got to remember that you are human and if um don't be embarrassed to seek help, you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, don't be embarrassed at all because it's it's uh mental health these days is just it's just it's opened a can of worms. It's a, well, it's a good can of worms, but mm-hmm. it's open. It's, everyone's more open these days about it, which I think is a fantastic thing. And if I think you can yes communicate.
0: yes and no. I think yes and no. Uh,
1: it depends how you use it. Yes. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. You know, because we're always exposed to like the abnormal. Yeah. And then the abnormal becomes our normal. <laughs> and <laughs> you do. don't you don't kind of realise. Yeah, and then yeah. it's like, oh, mm. you, you start... I don't know, behaving differently or yeah. speaking differently or being a lot less empathetic in normal life. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah, I think,
1: I yeah. don't know, yeah. Yeah, the job exposes you to that. But that's part of ambulance, you know. You're mm. you're going to people from all walks of life with all illnesses, sicknesses and um, issues, mm. that uh, from the very poor to the very rich and everything in between, and you're going to be exposed to everything that goes on in life. And as a paramedic, you've got to come in knowing that that's what you're going to expose to, and I mean, if you're if you're gonna make it, you've uh, you've got to be resilient and and find ways to cope. That's with it. That, totally. With that, with those yeah. Spot on.
0: Mm. Awesome. Well, I think we're about out of time. But thank no you worries. so much no, for my sharing pleasure, and no, joining anytime. me here. It was fantastic. Uh, thank you, Rich. Thanks and, very much. Um, hopefully, everyone's enjoyed hearing and learning about Pete. Shiny Pete. Yeah, shiny (laughs) Pete. (laughs) See you later, guys.
1: Thanks, Ruth.